0: Good morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. If you haven't already, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. We'll be studying this morning. Titles are important. I wanted to, uh, I entitled this sermon, Don't Be Afraid, taken from the text. It'd be nice to have an angel show up and say, don't be afraid, wouldn't it? What an amazing story as we unpack it this morning. Uh, Pastor Brian came up with a really good sermon title as we met on Thursday morning. He tweaked it. This story comes from the perspective of Joseph. Most of you are more familiar with the Luke account where it's told from the perspective of Mary. So he tweaked a relatively new song title to Joseph, Did You Know? I thought that was pretty witty. That's pretty good. Uh, Mine was, if I were being a little more playful, was Joseph, it's time This morning we have the story of the birth of Jesus. I can't put myself in Joseph's shoes without first just putting myself in mine. I thought today about, or over the week, about the, my, I have eight children, a set of twins, so seven births, Caleb, a hospital, Madison, birthing center, twins, under the care of midwives, at a hospital, Hope, Kind enough to go knee down while I'm in Iowa, so emergency C-section. You know, Isaiah back in the hospital, Angela at home. Uh, Where was Elijah born? I don't know. Hospital, I'm just kidding, buddy. And um, last one, just following in line. And you all have your unique stories and all all of the things that came along with that. All of the joys and struggles. Trey, it's time. We better go. Joseph, honey, <laughs> we're having a baby. And that's our story this morning. To put it in context and to tie it to what Pastor Brian spoke about last week uh, Matthew chapter 1, 1 through 17, last week's text. The genealogy that Debbie, uh, you prayed that you didn't have to read it. I prayed I didn't have to preach it. So uh, we're in the we're in the same boat there. Uh, reminds me a little bit of Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two, uh, with Matthew chapter uh, Matthew chapter one one through seventeen. It's like this big backdrop. You know, in chapter one of Genesis, it gives us all seven days, and then in chapter two, it kind of focuses on day six and blows up the creation account of man. That's a little bit like this. We're supposed to feel the weight of a new beginning here with Jesus as the new Adam. Remember last week, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Pastor taught us that that word genealogy is the word genesis. This is the genesis of Jesus Christ. John, or or Matthew, I've been in John recently, right? Matthew uh, repeats the word in chapter 1, verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ. That word birth, same word again, the genesis of Jesus We're called back to these three groupings of the 14 generations from last week. Remember the the groupings? There was the Abraham grouping, the David grouping, and the exile or the deportation grouping. This is going to become really important at the end of the sermon. But look at the backdrop here. Like I said in chapter 1, verse 18, the use of the word Genesis, the birth of Jesus Christ. And look at this. The Holy Spirit is present in the conception, just like he was linked at the creation account. Abraham is reminded here in many ways when we get the language of, you shall call his name Jesus. It's very, very similar to what the angel of the Lord said to Hagar, behold, you are pregnant, you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Or what God said to Abraham, God said, no, no, When Abraham asked him if Ishmael could be the son of promise, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So this whole Abraham thing is still just hanging heavy in the language and in the backdrop. And then you see that Joseph is called the son of David. Now, I don't know about you, and it falls empty on our cultural context if we don't think deeply about it. But when an angel shows up and calls you the son of David, do you think that has a little significance? (laughs) There is a strong messianic background there. And then all this talk about God being with us and saving us from our sins just hangs in the air similar to the deportation language. We are in a spiritual exile. And someone's got to bring us back. And so this is a big picture, little picture thing. And it really comes out of verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. And these verses, verses 18 through 25, are going to expound on that one verse So important that we have the backdrop, but so important that we get the microscope out and hear about the birth of Jesus. And Matthew says, now the birth of Jesus took place this way. Before we dive into the text, let me go ahead and give you the big idea here. I hope to show you this morning this. Because Jesus has come as a unique Savior, one of a kind, we can trust God to fulfill all His saving promises to us. All of them. Even when, or maybe even especially when life doesn't make sense to us. Because Jesus has come as our Savior, we can trust God to fulfill all of His saving promises to us. Even when, and maybe especially when, life doesn't make sense to us. Well, let's look at the story. It's a fun story, so we'll look at a couple of points here as we walk through it. Let's first see a very difficult situation, verses 18 and 19. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly the first thing I like to talk about this morning is a difficult situation and it's surrounding the details of the conception of Jesus Christ if you look at verse 18 and 19 and I take out the phrase from the Holy Spirit which makes it all okay <laughs> if I take that phrase out and I read now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Jesus before they came together She was found to be with child. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. What's going on here? Two things. Number one, Mary is with child. Consequently, Joseph does not want to be with her. What's clear, I'm sorry, what's not clear to us in our cultural context is Why is Joseph called Mary's husband when they're not yet married? And how they are not yet married, why is Joseph going to divorce her? Well, the key to solving this little riddle is, is again, a little cultural context. And listen closely. At this time and place in history, it was thought that marriage was way too far serious a step to be left to the dictates of the human heart. It's a quote by William Barclay. And it was for most couples in this culture, Joseph and Mary's parents had arranged a marriage for them, most likely. And here's how it worked. First, the fathers of two families would engage the couple, and this would happen usually in childhood. Now, later in life, as a second step, the couple would be betrothed. The girl was usually a teenager, the man was often a little bit older, and to be clear, their betrothal is not the same as our engagement. The betrothal is much more significant. It was the nearest step to marriage. It was the process of ratifying the engagement that the fathers had previously entered them into. And during the engagement period, the young woman could break the engagement if she was unwilling to marry the man while they were still young. Conversely, the man could break off the engagement, especially in cases that the woman had not kept her virginity. But once they entered betrothal, which happened about a year before the actual marriage, it was as binding as a marriage. Absolutely binding. And during that year, although they didn't sleep together, and they didn't live together, how does that sound, Nick? (laughs) I'm not passing judgment on one culture or another, but this is how it was. They were actually known as husband and wife. This explains why Joseph in our text is called Mary's husband. And if we look at a passage like Deuteronomy 22, 24, which has a dual purpose here, helps us understand the cultural context, but also puts the dilemma into into, into greater clarity. Deuteronomy 22, 24 says, "'If there is a betrothed virgin "'and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, "'then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, "'and you shall stone them to death with stones.'" The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. And that's the final point of caref- clarification. The only way a betrothal could be broken was through a legal divorce. So this explains what Joseph's up to in verse 19. Do you see the problem of it all? Mary is pregnant. She's betrothed to Joseph. Joseph is not the father of the baby. Now, during this time, the Jews are under Roman rule. They no longer have uh, all-determining self-government. They have to get permission to get Jesus crucified as a capital crime. They would not have had the right to execute Mary as as the law might have said in the past. But this situation would still produce all the social stigma, all of the ridicule, and everything, all the baggage that you can imagine. Luke's gospel focuses on Mary and the fact that she's in a tough spot. Matthew reminds us that Joseph's spot wasn't any easier. Mary was the woman who Joseph agreed to love. The woman who was going to have his children The woman who was going to nurture and teach them. Mary was the woman who might manage his household. And now she was out. She was found to be with child. Therefore, the stain of sexual sin hangs over her head. Worse than that for Joseph, he knows something. He knows the baby is not mine. (laughs) Biologically speaking, he had not touched her. This could only mean that someone else had. Just think about that for a minute. Walk in his shoes. Breathe in that air he's breathing. How do you feel if you're in his situation? Humiliated? Angry? Wounded? Jealous? hurt Matthew spends no time telling us how Joseph felt but I have a hard time thinking that he was so above it that these things weren't in his heart this is an awkward situation this is a hard situation so what did Joseph do what could Joseph do what would you do Joseph thinks seriously and patiently about the matter, and the Bible tells us that he resolves to do what was best in his mind for everyone. The Bible says, and Joseph, being a just man, this is the word for righteous, a righteous man, a man who follows God's word and is unwilling to put her to shame, decides to divorce her quietly. Joseph's not the hero of this story, God is. God's the hero of all of the Bible stories. But sometimes we can learn good lessons from people. Joseph's a great example of a man in a hard place trying to love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength and also trying to love his neighbor as himself. You facing anything hard this week? You facing anything hard this month? Anything difficult? Maybe something today. We're going to see in this text, having, as we move through the different observations, God specializes in difficult, awkward, hard, impossible situations. Aren't you glad for that? I'm only belaboring this point because we move past it so fast. And if we do not feel the weight and pain of this, we don't feel the glory and power of the miracle that's to come. If there's no real problem, you need no real solutions. God specializes in difficult, awkward, hard situations. And God loves to bring salvation and deliverance in the best ways at the right moments. So let's read on and see what we learn and what God does. Second thought here, we find an angelic affirmation. An angelic affirmation. The note that we get from heaven is that this is, Is a very, very special child. A very, very special child. Notice verses 20 and 21. But as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Many, many special things about Jesus, but one of the things that this text is absolutely clear on, and we must grapple with and think about for a few minutes, is the virgin birth. The virgin birth is an important part of theology qualifying Jesus as both God and man. Jesus having both divine origins as well as human flesh. Satan has been trying to dilute this truth for the last 2,000 year, years by ridiculing it or minimizing it or introducing counterfeits. Relatively recently in the Star Wars saga, Anakin Skywalker was said to be a child of the Force, by his mother. Should there was no father. Even more recently, Wonder Woman, Diana Prince, from the DC Comic Saga, is said to be a child of the gods who had no father. Pagan history is replete with this fictitious lore of counterfeits. Friends, Jesus' account is unique, important, and true. If Jesus is an ordinary man, if Jesus is simply like all the other men, then we can say he was probably born like all the other men. But Jesus is not like anybody else. And he was not born like anybody else. If he is the illegitimate child of Mary's infidelity, or if Jesus is the child of Joseph's natural sexual activity with Mary, then Jesus is not God. If he's not God, his claims are lies. If his claims are lies, the salvation is a hoax. If salvation is a hoax, then we are like Paul said, still in our sins and we ought to be pitied for our faith. Now I don't even understand how human conception works. Then I stayed on the north side of the curtain. I don't know how birth works. Don't ask me how it works. God did it. It's a miracle. But we will see through Jesus' life that a cloud of shame and scandal hangs ominously over Mary. Friends, in all of human history, there has never been a virgin birth. There had not been a virgin birth before. There has not been a virgin birth since. Except in this case. When people saw an unwed mother, there's only one conclusion. That's it. Only one except in this case, the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us clearly it was the work of the Holy Spirit. It was the work of the Holy Spirit to Genesis Jesus. Just as the Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters at creation in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, so here, for our salvation, Luke tells us that the Holy Spirit, listen to this word, overshadowed Mary's womb, making God's Son Into one of us. With bones. And brains. And blood. With lungs. And lips. And lymph nodes. With head. And heart. And hands. And you might not pick up on this subtle thing. But the Bible is very careful about never. Ever naming Joseph as the father of Jesus. Do you know that? For example, in Matthew chapter 2, 13, it says when Joseph receives another dream and is told, uh, given instructions, Arise, take the young child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Always the mother. Why didn't he say, take your child and your wife? Why? The child and the mother. Always Joseph is removed from actual fatherhood. Then in Matthew 2.20, they're in Egypt and it's time to come home. And they are told to rise, take the young child and his mother and go to the land of Egypt. It's always the child and his mother. Never Joseph is the father. Virgin born. It's an important theological point. so miraculous and becomes so important as we consider the next thoughts. But one other thought here. That little phrase, save his people from their sins. What a great statement. Call him Jesus, just the Hebrew Joshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. You understand Jesus' name just means deliverance, just means salvation. This phrase, save his people, their sins. You understand, Matthew was written primarily to a Jewish audience, and so it reeks and drips of Old Testament quotes and allusions, and all these things at the beginning get paid off at the end. This idea here that Jesus is going to reference a very significant prophecy at the last Passover feast when he inaugurates the new covenant, this language would have. Rung out from Jeremiah chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they'll all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, and I'll forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. And you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The new covenant is foreshadowed here that Jesus, when he institutes the Lord's table, will at the last Passover with his disciples will ring out the fulfillment. So beautiful. So beautiful. Not just a difficult situation but just this wonderful angelic affirmation that this is the plan of God. Uh, next thought here, we find this divine incarnation, and it grows out of the virgin birth. And Matthew ties it to, if you'll read with me, verses 22 and 23. These thoughts are linked he says all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by his prophet. So now he's going to quote an Old Testament prophecy that is going to relate to what he's just said, and he's going to tie a story and a prophecy from the Old Testament to this. And he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, our friend. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This word Emmanuel means God with us. Well, what's this prophecy about? Well, it goes back to the Old Testament where in the divided monarchy and the southern kingdom is ruled by a man named King Ahaz, not a particularly godly king. The prophet is Isaiah, who is giving uh, counsel at the time. The northern kingdom uh, and the southern kingdom are divided, and Ahaz is very upset because there are both Israel to the north thinking about conquering him and another, uh, another pagan country And Isaiah comes to him and says, you don't need to worry. The Lord is going to deliver you. It's not time for the southern kingdom to fall. In fact, Isaiah, it's kind of almost counterintuitive to most of the scripture, but Isaiah says to King Ahaz, ask the Lord for a sign. Mostly we're not supposed to ask for signs. We're supposed to trust the word of God. But for whatever reason, Maybe because Ahaz was a pagan, and I, I shouldn't speculate. But, but Isaiah says, ask for a sign. The sign will be fulfilled, and you will believe, be able to believe that God is going to sustain your kingdom. And I don't know about you, but if a prophet came to me and said, ask for a sign, I'd probably come up with a good one. But Ahaz says, no, I'm not going to do that. So Isaiah says, okay, you're not going to do it? I'll give you a sign. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, with most Bible prophecies, there's a historical context that they were given in, and there's a fulfillment of that prophecy kind of close to its given, what we would call a partial fulfillment, kind of a, Uh, historically rooted, grounded fulfillment. But oftentimes in prophecy, there is a very futuristic, messianic component of that too. Does that make sense? So there would be a fulfillment, kind of in the near term that people could see. This was for Ahaz and Isaiah and the people of that day. So there was going to be some kind of fulfillment, but there was going to be a longer fulfillment. Now this gets a little in the weeds here, but this word virgin in the Hebrew language can mean virgin, or it can mean young maiden, okay, in the original Hebrew. So at this time, this was not a virgin birth. And Isaiah's wife had a son, Mahershalah Hashbaz. You're welcome, Elijah. (laughs) Mahershalah Hashbaz, which actually means uh, hurry to the plunder. That was coming. It was a sign. When Isaiah named his son, uh, there is a day coming, Ahaz. It's not today, but people are coming because of your wickedness. A little bit later, Isaiah continuing to speak in Isaiah 8.10, speaking to Ahaz, speaks of the outstretched wings, filling the breath of the land, O Emmanuel. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. That's Isaiah 8.10. And then a wonderful Christmas verse that you're probably very, very familiar with in the same context, God speaking of it. Some have prayed about it today. We are told Ahaz is warned, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's all very messianic, rolling through this. And so you have this near fulfillment that Isaiah's wife as a son, Mahershala Hashbaz, as a sign to King Ahaz that God is true and right and will fulfill and honor his word. And yet, it doesn't really sound like a Christmas story, does it? The greater fulfillment comes now when, Isaiah, when Matthew takes this, uh, takes this verse. And incidentally, just to put a bow on this, if some of you are really smart and going, why is it not a virgin there and a virgin here? Matthew does something very, very intentional. He doesn't quote from the Hebrew Bible. He quotes from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. It's called the Septuagint. You ever heard of that? There was a translation of the Hebrew Bible. And, and in the Septuagint, there's a Greek word that only means virgin, <laughs> like means biological virgin. Guess what, you, guess what word Matthew uses? He narrows it down. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew solves this little dilemma for us about Isaiah's wife and how could their fulfillments be, slight, be that kind of distinct. And Matthew sharpens that word in God's providence. It's beautiful. Now just think about this idea of God with us. Emmanuel. We were at dinner Friday night. I was reminded of a song by a guy named Chris Rice, about, I think it's 15, 20 years ago, called Welcome to Our World. you know, familiar heard this song, it's beautiful. You should listen to it. Tears are falling, hearts are breaking. How we need to hear from God. You've been promised, we've been waiting. Welcome, holy child. Hope that you don't mind our manger. How I wish we could have known. But long-awaited, holy stranger, make yourself at home. Please, make yourself at home. Bring your peace into our violence. Bid our hungry souls be filled. Word now breaking, heaven's silence, welcome to our world. Fragile fingers sent to heal us. Tender brow prepared for thorn. Tiny heart whose blood will save us. Unto us is born. So wrap our injured flesh around you, breathe our air and walk our sod, rob our sins and make us holy, perfect Son of God. Welcome to our world. This idea of the incarnation, God with us, fully God, fully man. In theological terms, we call it the hyperstatic, theanthropic union. (laughs) God, uh, don't ask me to explain it, I'm just going to describe it. Not 50 50. Not 50% God, 50% man. No. Colossians says that in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. God with us. We needed it. Well, let's look at the last thought here a miraculous presentation. Hmm. Last two verses. When Joseph woke from sleep, what a great, another great example here, Joseph? I just want you to notice this. Joseph does what he was told. <laughs> Debbie prayed. You know this is what a great example that Joseph just obeyed the angel. My life, I know, would be tons simpler if I would just always obey God's word, without fear, without hesitation. If I would just trust. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. And again, the virgin birth is like so on point here. Matthew reemphasizes it. And he did not know her until she had given birth to a son. It wasn't just a virgin conception. (laughs) It was a virgin birth. And he called his name Jesus. Jesus. A miraculous presentation. A -a one-of-a-kind kid. I love my kids. I do. And I think they're all one-of-a-kind. And you do too. But God so loved the world that he gave his... Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That was like a mutt translation. (laughs) And it's true. Because some of you said only, only begotten. And some of you said one and only, some of you said only, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that's the word I want to focus on, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This word that's translated only begotten very literally is a Greek word called monogenes. And I don't like using Greek unless it's so easy that we can come to it together, right? Um, What does mono mean? Which means one. And Ganesh, we've already been talking about Genesis, origin. So once born, only begotten. Now you might take that wrongly and think, okay, yeah, he had a moment in time when he was born. He was born one time. It's a little more theologically rich than that. The NIV translates it, one and only. That's getting closer to it. it. Has the idea of uniqueness? you feel that? One of a kind? This will never... Happen again. (laughs) This is Jesus. Fully God, fully man. For God so loved the world that he gave his absolutely and totally one-of-a-kind, unique son. It actually doesn't have anything to do with the the idea of actual birth. It's more of a descriptive one-of-a-kind, unique attitude. Never again. Ironically, we don't know much about Joseph. He was probably a great guy. Probably because I don't think God would give his one and only son to be raised by someone who wouldn't be a loving father. Man, I'm not a patient father. I don't know what it would be like. I I would be wretched to deal with a perfect son. My sons would love this. The frustration of them being able to come to me and say, No, Dad, it's this way. And they're always right. (laughs) Why is this part of the story so important? You might run through a couple things here quickly, but I want to say them to you. It's important because it shows us how Joseph made Mary's son his own son. I've stressed this repeatedly, that Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus, but Joseph is the son of David, and Jesus must be in David's line. And so we learn Several things, how Jesus was legally the son of Joseph in that culture. First, Joseph took Mary as his wife. Second, Joseph named the son, bestowing on the baby boy the name of Jesus. Giving him the status of the descendant of David. If you think about the first chapter of Matthew's Gospel this way, those first 17 verses, the genealogy, confirm to us that Jesus is the promised one, the descendant of Abraham, the descendant of David, and the rescuer from the deportation, the one who will bring us back to blessing. These eight verses today confirm to us that Jesus is truly from the line of David as Paul wrote in Romans 1, descended from David according to the flesh. The camera angle is really wide in those first 17 verses and now here it narrows its focus on this beautiful little holy family, Mary, Jesus, and Joseph. i want to invite the praise team back up to the platform as we finish here. It's a great, great, great little passage I've been asked to share with you this morning. A difficult situation, an angelic affirmation, this idea of the Emmanuel, the divine incarnation, this presentation of Jesus to us. Well, naming a kid is tough. It started with the idea of a birth, but after the birth, you got to name the child. Agonizing over naming kids. We had eight kids. Being handed baby book names, somebody help me. That was arduous. I think Lori and I are pretty happy with every name, though. And God in his great providence, and you probably feel this way too, gave us unique reasons for naming every child, and we loved the naming of a child it would have taken a lot less time if an angel had just shown up and shortened the process for us <laughs> You remember those 14 generations Abraham, David and the deportation Jesus perfectly named absolutely just like Abraham Joseph's son would have a miraculous birth I mean Sarah was pretty old right and just like David, Joseph's son would have the right as king in the line of David. And Joseph's son, praise the Lord, redeems his people from their spiritual exile, the deportation. See, this is the, the, the zoom in. At the start of his life, the Jews said that Jesus was the son of a man who seduced Mary. At the end of his life, they said the disciples stole his body and faked the resurrection. And Matthew begins his gospel with an answer to the first slander and ends his gospel with an answer to the last slander and spends the entire rest of his gospel fighting against all of the slanders against our Lord Jesus. Jesus was none other than God in the flesh. He came to dwell with the sick to heal them. To live with the demon-possessed to liberate them. With the poor in spirit to bless them. With the lepers to cleanse them. With the disease to cure them. With the hungry to feed them. With the handicapped to restore them. But most of all, he says, he came to dwell with the lost in order that he might seek and save them from their sins, Emmanuel, God with us, infinitely rich, becoming poor, taking on our human nature, entering our sin-polluted world, never tainted by it, took our guilt, bore our griefs, carried our sorrows, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, gone to heaven to prepare a place for us, sent his spirit to dwell in our hearts, and right now making intercession for us, and one day will come to take us to be with him. And they called his name Jesus. Amen.